This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your regular podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. Now, English Heritage exists to conserve, celebrate, and provide access to the nation's heritage. But this doesn't just apply to the historic buildings and landmarks under its care. It also applies to the precious historic collections associated with these sites. This includes an extraordinary collection of paintings that visitors can admire during a walk around the corridors of grand homes such as Kenwood, Audley End, Eltham Palace and more. These include key moments in Western art history, such as the water cellar of Seville by Velázquez at Apsley House and Rembrandt's late self-portrait at Kenwood. But just as built heritage is affected by age and environmental issues, so too are these works of art. This week I'm delighted to be joined by Senior Collections Conservator Rachel Turnbull to discover what goes into caring for and restoring this fine art collection, and also what art lovers can do to care for their own paintings at home. Hello Rachel. Hi. First of all then, how many paintings are English Heritage responsible for caring for? We look after about 1,500 paintings, which are in properties all around the country, about 23 different sites, which range from castles to historic houses to more domestic settings. And does this include the wall paintings that we discussed in a previous episode? It doesn't. We count those slightly differently. So there were about 77 of those. And these paintings that we're talking about today, easel paintings, are movable. So we look after those in a slightly different way. Of course. So, where can visitors and members see these paintings? We mentioned a couple in the introduction, Kenwood, Audley End, Eltham, many other places as well. Can you give us a a few highlights? Yeah, so you've got sort of very glamorous sites like Apsley House or Kenwood, where you can see some really famous paintings like Velasquez or Rembrandt. But there are also paintings at other places like Brodsworth Hall up in Yorkshire, where there are some very important paintings there as well, but there are also some more smaller paintings of a more personal nature to the family that lived in that property. And there are other paintings in places like Boscopal or even paintings in castles. So basically London, London, South Yorkshire near Doncaster, or Doncaster, depending on (laughs) where you're from, (laughs) and uh, Shropshire. Yes, I mean, but much more widely spaced out than that. In fact, there are paintings in some of the museums up on Hadrian's Wall. Not so many, but they stretch from Hadrian's Wall right down to Cornwall, to Pendennis. Pretty much where you've got an existing country house or stately home, that kind of thing, not ruins, is generally where you're going to have an easel-type painting on canvas. And the nice thing about our collection, which is slightly different to a gallery setting, is in most cases, not all, but in most cases... They're very particular to that place. So they have a historical link with that setting, if it's a house or a castle. Maybe it's the sitter or maybe it's the family that once lived there. It might be their collection. So things are where they have been quite often for a very, very long time. Yes, and I think that makes a, for a really authentic visitor experience, doesn't it? Because in the case of Kenwood, for example, in London on the edge of Hampstead Heath there, you've got Lord Ivor's collection as you walk around the entire property. Yeah, and what a collection that is with the Rembrandt and the Vermeer. Amazing, amazing collection of paintings there. 
Yeah, definitely. This was going to feed into my next question, actually, which was, what are some of the most famous paintings in the collection? We've got the self-portrait of Rembrandt, which we've covered in a previous podcast at Kenwood. We've got the Vermeer, which we also covered in a previous visit to Kenwood. Can you think of any other famous paintings? Well, there's a Botticelli at Ranger's House, which is where I am right now, and lots of other amazing paintings at Ranger's House as well. There are many amazing paintings at Apsley House in the centre of London, lots by Velasquez and Bruegel and many, many other artists. We really do have a world-class collection of paintings. Yes, Apsley House is particularly impressive, I must admit, when you walk into that enormous room as you walk through the property. It's wall-to-wall paintings. It's, it's really unbelievable. And of course, you've got the Duke of Wellington painting there as well. Yeah, I mean, Apsley, the room you're talking about, the Waterloo Gallery, is is incredible. It's so bright and it's quite bling amazing gilded furniture and gilded elements to the decoration and then it's as you say absolutely floor to ceiling with the most amazing international quality art and very realistic art as well you know you can really tell that this is really high quality absolutely yeah the water cellar is is beautiful you can see the droplets of water running down the jug and you can feel like you could actually sort of pick it up and take it off the wall almost yeah it's got real photographic quality that one definitely so obviously people now are getting a good sense of where they can go to go and see these amazing pieces of art but your job of course is to do with making sure that these pieces of art look as best as they possibly can when a painting comes into your studio for repair or touch-up restoration whatever it is what are the typical issues that you have to deal with so we because we have so many paintings and there are only two of us that look after them. We assess the paintings every five years. We go and look at every single thing and we check to see what kind of condition it's in. We then make a selection of the things that are in the worst condition that we then bring into the studio. And typically they may have flaking paint, they may have problems with a panel or a canvas, and they may have very discoloured resin varnishes that are actually obscuring the detail of the paintings themselves. Right. Are these sort of caused by environment? Some of these um, issues, the flaking and things like that, are often caused by the environment in which they are in. We do our very best to keep them in the most stable environment that we possibly can and our scientists help us out no end with moderating carefully the environments in which our paintings are housed. However, it's not like a gallery space. We are working with castles and historic houses, so it's rather more difficult to do that accurately. So we do have paintings where flaking paint might occur or problems might occur with panels or canvases that are, or at least the environment is a contributing factor. And in that case, we bring them into the studio and do our best to fix those problems. What kind of environmental factors specifically? I'm thinking of maybe humidity, that sort of thing. Absolutely. So the amount of moisture that's in the air and importantly, fluctuations that occur within that. So if the environment goes from particularly dry to particularly wet very quickly, the way that the different materials in a painting, if you think that they might be made up of canvas and paint and wood and resin, all those different materials will respond differently to both the moisture in the air and the temperature in the air. And they're all moving differently. They're creating stresses between them. And that is what causes flaking paint quite often or split panels or issues with the canvas. And this is where I guess um, they call in the experts and that's you. Who else is in your team? 
So my colleague is Alice Tate Hart, and we really work as a as a double act, looking after all these things. It's quite difficult if you think if you were to go on your own to look after a painting, you can only really deal with a painting that you can physically carry yourself. We work together, and then we can achieve an awful lot more. Okay, so when this uh, painting comes into the double acts studio, how many might you have sort of in triage in the waiting room, ready to be dealt with at, at one time? It really depends. You know, it could be anything from maybe just one or two, depending on what we're doing. Maybe we have a slightly larger number of paintings to which we're doing a slightly different set of work at one time, or we maybe have a couple that we're doing really full, complex treatments. So it depends when you um, were to arrive in the studio what we would actually have there. Okay, so before we pulled you away from your work today and asked you to record a podcast with us, (laughs) can you tell us what you might have been working on? So at the moment in the studio, we have a set of paintings from Brodsworth Hall we talked about in South Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. There is a, a, a portrait of a girl with a spaniel and there are a couple of smaller little pictures, one of a dead pheasant, which is um, very tiny on a mahogany panel, and then a really beautiful little picture of Leda and the Swan. So it's a nude with um, beautiful blue water and sky and clouds and foliage. And then we've also got a painting that we've been working on for a rather long time, slightly delayed by COVID, unfortunately, Mm. but um, from Audley End House. And it's a a very early picture of a lady selling vegetables. So it's a a big picture and the lady is in the foreground and she has a great table full of vegetables. And the vegetables really are the main star of the show. And the painting dates from the late 16th century. So is the very early date before tomatoes and potatoes were in Europe. So it's really interesting to look at the vegetables that are on display, but really interesting to look at those vegetables and see see what they were eating. For that particular painting, what sort of work are you having to do to it now? So that's been with us for a long time. It was quite complex treatment and um, it was in a really poor state and hadn't been on display for a very, very long time. It had an extremely discoloured varnish and lots of later restoration which were really obscuring what the quality was underneath and we've removed those darker layers of resin and grub and later restoration to uncover a really beautiful picture underneath and it's allowed us to be rather more sure of its date and a potential attribution Um, and then it will go back into the house this summer and we'll go on display and um, for the first time in a very long time it will be on display and people will be able to go and see it. How long would you have been working on that? You said a long time. And would both you and Alice have been sharing the work? In this case, we have shared it because it was such a big project and that quite a lot of hours, it's hundreds of hours work to remove the later restoration and the varnish. And now to do the restoration side of the treatment, which is to replace the damages and the losses with new paint to fill in the gaps, if you like. What caused this sort of resin to become sort of darker and for the vegetables to to look less lifelike, I suppose, less colourful? Yeah, so historically, paintings would be varnished with a natural resin, most often something called damar. And this resin, we know it darkens with time, actually darkens quite quickly sometimes and goes from a very beautiful glossy surface to a really quite brown looking coating which obscures all the colours beneath and we use solvents very carefully to remove that layer and get back 
to just the original paint. And then we will resaturate the painting afterwards with a new varnish and we will use something that won't discolour so quickly, hopefully not at all, so that people can see the painting and its true colours for as long as possible. It sounds as though, Rachel, that the original intention of the artist, which is to protect his or her work with this resin, it sort of has the double effect, unfortunately, of causing it over time to sort of lose its brightness. Is that right? So these natural resins, they discolour relatively quickly and over the centuries paintings are cleaned of the darkened resin and a new coat will be put on. And today we try and put on a material that won't darken or certainly won't darken as quickly. So that process is slowed right down. It's almost like the opposite of sunlight fading photographs that you leave on the windowsill, isn't it? Yeah, I guess. Although they can fade too. So you, yeah, you must take care not to put your paintings in direct sunlight because it can have a similar effect as with works on paper and photographs. Yes, we'll come to that towards the end, actually, when we ask uh, about uh, how you can conserve your own works of art. So we've got a good sense now of how you and Alice work together in the studio, how many paintings you've got potentially in the queue, and you might spend a really long time on a project as well. Let's talk about now this process of conserving or restoring. You talked a little bit about how you clean, but um, can you go into a bit more detail about what goes on and what tools you use, that sort of thing? So when something comes into the studio, we've got an idea of what the problems are, but we do a lot of investigation before we start on anything. So we take lots of photographs. We do lots of other kinds of imaging as well. So we use a raking light to look and see if we can find any lifting paint or any problems like that. We use UV light, ultraviolet, Mm -hmm. to see uh, the fluorescing varnish. So the natural resin that we've been talking about, Damar, it fluoresces quite a bright yellowy green under ultraviolet so we can see where that is and how thick it is and it also allows us to see old restoration which will quite often look very dark compared to the surrounding resin so once we've done all of the investigations and we think we've got a handle on what's going on then we can proceed to the next phase which might be cleaning so removing this resin that we've talked about and we would start testing with solvents most usually on little tiny swabs that we make with like um, a skewer, like a wooden skewer that you might use for your barbecue. And we roll a little bit of cotton wool on the end of it. And we start off with very safe, well, solvents that we know are going to do very little damage or hopefully no damage at all to the painting, but will hopefully actually remove the resin. So what we want to do is exploit the difference between the resin that's not original and we want to take off and the original oil paint that we obviously don't want to damage in the slightest and we find the least worst solvent to do that and then we roll the solvents over the surface very gently no rubbing no scrubbing and on these tiny little swabs we gradually work our way over the painting and remove the resin always taking care the whole time to make sure that we're not removing any original paint or doing anything that's damaging the original. So that's the cleaning side of things. There's also other parts of conserving or or restoring a painting as well, which would involve, I suppose, sorting out these flecks or these flakes which have come off. You'd have to do sort of touch-ups, I'm guessing. Yeah, so the first thing we would do is if we had a flaking painting, is we call it consolidation. So, but really it's sticking the paint flakes back and we use 
special glues that are particularly formulated depending on the kind of painting we're talking about and the kind of flaking that we've got because it might be anything from tiny little microscopic flakes to larger areas of delamination that might occur in a very thickly oil painted work. Once we've stuck them all back together again then we can fill any little holes with some material and then we can undertake what we normally refer to as the restoration part of the treatment which would be putting back some new paint in the places where it's lost and for that we don't use oil paint like the original would have been made in we use the same kind of pigments quite often but we use a resin that again we know is really stable and isn't going to degrade with time and what we really want to do is make sure that anything that we add to the painting can be removed really easily by people in the future. Oh, that's really interesting. To, yeah, I don't want to put something on the painting that can't be taken off once it's not serving its function because it doesn't match the painting anymore, which will happen over time as what I've put back changes at a different rate to the original painting. So we use a resin that will stay really soluble in the solvents that we've talked about. Right. When you're doing all this research into pigments for the resins that you're going to put over these surfaces, do you have to really do a lot of research into what colour that is and how do you even go about doing that? We kind of, depending on the age of a painting and maybe who it's by, we've got a good idea what pigments they were likely to have used. And there's lots of information out there about when certain pigments were invented or were commonly used. So we use that kind of information to take a really good stab at it. There are lots of pigments that have been used forever. Um, so the browns are normally earth pigments. So they're effectively sort of clays really. And if you think of all the different color clays that you could have ranging from dark reds through to deep browns. And they're the same pigments that have been used forever, really dating right back into prehistory. So they haven't changed and they're relatively stable. So we would replicate those pigments and use the same kind of pigments when we were doing our restoration. There are other pigments that we know are quite fugitive. So certain reds that have been used in the past fade incredibly quickly. And sometimes you can see portraits where the sitter looks slightly pasty and slightly unwell. They probably didn't look like that originally. They probably were quite rosy cheeked even. Yes. <laughs> and that's gone just with light. So we wouldn't use those kind of pigments. Again, we would use things that we know are stable and aren't going to fade. That's really interesting. Is that all the specialist equipment that you have to use? Are there other bits? You talked about um, a camera for a start. and There's UV. We use UV to look at the surface of the painting. We also use infrared sometimes to look at underdrawing. So that's an amazing technique where you can sometimes see how the artist made the picture and see the layers beneath. Sometimes we can use x-ray to do the same thing, but it shows up slightly different changes that the artist has made. We take cross-sections, so tiny little samples, which we embed, pinpricks, which we embed in resin and we grind them down to see the layers of paint. And that can help us understanding how the artist built up the painting, but also can help us understand what later additions have been made by restorers. The infrared thing, uh, an x-ray thing, must yield some really interesting results when you sometimes have to investigate at that level. Because if, if anyone knows the BBC's Fake or Fortune programme, where they're investigating the origin of pieces of art and whether they're real and done by a certain artist or not, that must reveal some really interesting things sometimes. 
Oh, it's amazing. Sometimes it can be an absolutely transformative in our understanding of a painting and can help incredibly with things like attribution. So whilst we're primarily restoring and conserving the pictures in our care, we also contribute to the understanding of the works themselves in terms of who painted it and how they painted it. Quite often it's these more complex investigative techniques like infrared and x-ray can really help unlock who might have painted something. If you look at, at an underdrawing, it's like the handwriting of an artist. So what might look like something that belongs to a particular artist on the surface, once you do the infrared and look at underdrawing beneath, it can really help you confirm or sometimes show that that's not the case. In that way, you're an art historian, a researcher, a pioneer and a conservator, aren't you? That sounds very glamorous. In all seriousness, it does sound like you're very much contributing to the knowledge of art history in your well, work. We like to think so. We like to think so. And sometimes we're able to do that. Yeah. Hmm. We've talked about the, the paintings that you work on. What's been the most challenging one to do? There's different kinds of challenging. Some of the most challenging paintings can often be um, 19th century paintings. They can be incredibly sensitive to heat and to moisture and to the solvents that we want to use to remove the resin layers. Quite often at that time, artists were mixing resin in with their oil paints. So that means then when we go and try and clean them, we can't use our usual set of solvents to take that resin off because we would likely affect the original paint beneath, which is absolutely not what we want to do. So it's usually 19th century paintings that we're particularly wary of. And of the ones that you've worked on that which are, might be particularly famous, can you give us a few names? We always, um, the other artists that we always are very nervous about is Reynolds. We have lots of paintings by Reynolds across lots of different sites. There's plenty up at Kenwood that you can go and see. And they're a real challenge to clean and to treat. And we've been working recently with um, some real experts in the field of Reynolds and his technique to better understand how we could go about looking at some of um, his paintings and perhaps treating them in the future. So whilst we've shied away from that a little bit, hopefully in the coming years, we might be able to treat some Reynolds from Kenwood House. Now, we've talked, obviously, about all the conservation work and the tools and the paintings that you worked on. But what goes around a painting is, of course, the frame. Does that also need work? The frame is incredibly important. We do do some work on frames as well. We have a level of skill, which means we can do certain treatments on frames. If the treatment gets particularly complex, then we would send the frame off to a specialist frame conservator who would have had a particular set of training to allow them to really work on those well and effectively. The thing that we do a lot of though is the framing of the painting and that's incredibly important. So we've talked about the fact that we house a lot of our paintings in castles and other places where the external environment is not ideal. One of the techniques that we use to get around that is we place the paintings in what we call a microclimate. So we take the frame and we turn it into effectively a little housing for the painting that has its own environment inside and isn't affected by what's going on outside. So the painting stays nice and safe and cosy inside the frame. It doesn't matter so much what's happening mm. in the room or the castle in which it's housed. 
Well, that's really clever. I'd never really appreciated that before. Is there much work involved in reframing a painting? Does it take very long? It can take a bit of time, yes, because particularly making a microclimate, because we have to take care to firstly fit a piece of glass into the front of the frame, and then we have to make sure that the painting doesn't touch the front of the glass, so there's some carpentry that goes on. And then we have to line, if we're making a microclimate, we line the insides of the frame, the bit that you don't see at the back, with um, a kind of foil, if you like, to stop the moisture getting in and out of the wooden carcass of the frame mm. so that the painting can sit nicely snug in the middle. And the carpentry that goes on behind the scenes to make that happen can be quite challenging because you're working with a historic frame that might not have nice right angles or straight sides. So it can be quite a challenge sometimes. As well as paintings and, of course, frames, is there any other conservation and restoration work that you do at your studio? That's mainly it. When you train to be a conservator, your training is very specific to the medium in which you're going to work. So as I said, we can do a little bit of work to frames. We know a little bit about that, but we would never undertake a really full treatment. We also wouldn't work on anything on paper. So we wouldn't work on a watercolour or a print because, again, that's a completely different set of training because you learn about the particular materials that you're likely to encounter along the way. We said earlier that we first did a podcast about wall paintings and that was back in episode 26 and English Heritage of course cares for the nation's largest collection of wall paintings and we were talking at that time about a project that was launched to conserve and restore some of these so can you give us an update on uh, how that work's been going? I can't remember whether we had how far we'd got with the audit at that point in time, but we embarked upon a process to begin to audit all of the wall paintings and look at the condition of them and set out a list of priorities in terms of their treatment. Sadly, we were supposed to do a whole load more last year and that, for obvious reasons, didn't happen. Um, very, very hopeful that we will be able to continue this coming year and also start to do further work to actually execute some of the treatments that the audit throws up as being necessary. We did manage a few sites before lockdown happened last year. So we did quite a lot of work at Bolsover Little Castle, which is absolutely beautiful. And the audit had identified some problems with delaminating plaster and some flaking paint. So we were able to send a team of specialist wall paintings conservators up there who were able to stabilise that plaster and paint and make it good for the future. So it's really satisfying to think that we're beginning to make progress and I really hope that we're able to make a lot more progress this year. And that's Bolsover Castle, Derbyshire, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's a beautiful site. It sits right on the edge of a hill and you get incredible views. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. You get to travel quite a lot, I suppose, as part of your job, doing all these audits and uh, inspecting paintings on site. Do you travel a lot? We do travel a fair amount. The big treatments have to be done in the studio because of the chemicals that we use. So the paintings do come to us each year for that purpose. But also there's a degree of work that we can carry out on site. And that can often be a much more productive way of looking after lots of things. Particularly, we've just been talking about framing. We can go to site over a, a couple of weeks and work on 20 or 30 paintings to improve the framing and give them backing. So that means that we actually put something behind the painting, the bit that you can't see. So nobody would know that we've done anything, but we know that backing on the back of a canvas or a panel can really help 
stabilize that painting in terms of environmental impact and also protects physically against dust or any other damage that might be caused by movement. Does going on site help with the research and understanding of the location and also then help and inform your restoration and conservation of particular paintings? Seeing with your own eyes what's really going on in that location. Absolutely. So when we go and do our audits, we're always keeping in mind if there is damage, what's caused that damage? Why a particular room in a property might have a particular set of problems? And then we can feed back into our wider conservation team and work together to try and solve that problem so that the damage doesn't continue. Are there main differences between conserving a wall painting and a painting on canvas? I suppose one is the environment, isn't it? Because with the wall painting, those pigments and lines are straight onto a surface which is very much vulnerable to the elements, isn't it? With the wall paintings, you've got nowhere to go. It's the environment that is an absolute challenge, not least that a lot of our wall paintings are in buildings and castles and ruins even, where there is absolutely no way that you can control that. With an easel painting, we can take it to the studio and fix it, and then we can make it much more safe within its little frame housing as we've talked about Mm. um, and that makes it easier in many respects to look after. Okay well let's talk now about how to conserve your own art. What are your top tips for keeping people's paintings looking good if they've got them at home? (laughs) Well if you're lucky enough to have your own paintings at home the first thing really I would say is don't try and conserve them yourself. Use a professional which may sound like a very obvious thing, but I have seen instances in the past where people have tried to have a go themselves and they can do an awful lot of damage very quickly. We train for a long time to know what we're doing and to do it safely, um, and it's not something to be undertaken lightly. Yes. Having said that, there are lots of things that you can do to try and prevent damage occurring in the first place. So my top tips are if you can manage it and I appreciate that in your own home these things are not always possible to achieve but try not to hang a painting over a radiator for example because if you remember what we've been talking about in terms of environmental changes as that radiator goes on and off during the day you'll find that the environment above that radiator where your painting is sitting is going all over the place and that's exactly the kind of thing that could cause your painting to flake and become rather badly damaged. And the other thing that we've also talked about a little bit is light and fading. So try not to hang your painting where direct sunlight can fall on it. Now obviously you want to be able to see your painting and you're not going to hang it in a a darkened room, but if you've got a particular wall where you know every day if the sun's shining you get a real shaft of bright light that falls on it, if you've got an option to move it onto a wall where that doesn't happen, I would strongly advise it because then you won't get any fading or changes to the colour of the painting. Yes, and it's the same thing with leather sofas. (laughs) So um, (laughs) for anyone who's got a leather sofa or thinking of buying one, (laughs) don't do what I did and leave it near the window. Cover it it up (laughs) Yeah, because it does fade. I suppose lastly, Rachel, the last thing I'd like to know, I I think I would feel really nervous doing your job. How do you feel carrying out this work? You must need to have sort of the hands of a surgeon in a way. You do have to have a steady hand. There's no doubt about it. You sort of have to switch off from what it is that you're doing. You have to try and remain calm, obviously, 
Um, you wouldn't be able to do it if you were all of a jitter. Personally speaking, I try and treat everything that I work on the same, be it something that I know is incredibly financially valuable or something that I know is not perhaps so valuable, but is historically significant, perhaps to the place where it normally lives. Mm. So it's just a case of remaining calm and um, calm and confident. Just being dispassionate and methodical, sort of scientific, really. Yeah, absolutely. But you've got an arty side, I presume. You're not just completely scientific and, and rigorous and rigid about what you do. You must have a bit of a creative flair, I suppose. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the reason that I embarked on conservation as a as a profession, as a career, was actually my teacher at school. And she could see that I had a degree of talent for painting, but she also knew that I didn't want to be an artist. And she suggested at the age of 16 that I should look into conservation as a profession, and it stuck with me. And it's this great combination, as you say, between science and um, some historical side as well with a practical skill set so you've got to be able to wield a paintbrush and use a saw so for me it's a great combination what a fantastic legacy for your teacher do you think they know that you're doing this now she does i wrote to her a few years ago and thanked her for her very good advice all those years ago that's a lovely story i must admit from an emotional point of view then finally what's it like recovering the sort of original brush strokes of master painters it can be an amazing moment. You can have these incredible moments of discovery and it's very nice if you're doing that and there's somebody else there to share it with. It doesn't always happen like that. Sometimes you might be on your own. But um, yeah, it can be absolutely incredible. It can be sort of get your hairs on your arm on end. It's, um, it's wonderful. I'm very, very lucky. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you'd like to see Rachel at work, head over to English Heritage's YouTube channel and search using the keyword painting. Next week, we're marking our 100th episode with a visit to Boscobel House in Shropshire to discover how they're celebrating one of the greatest adventure stories in English history. Until then, thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>